this session um, of Ideas for Freedom. Um, it's on Zach, Clara Zakian, Rosa Luxemburg, who are pictured in the German women's movement. Um, mostly it's going to be Kieran um, speaking. Um, I'm going to chip in a little bit as well. Um, we're both members of Workers' Liberty uh, in Lambeth. Um, and yeah, so we're, we're going to kind of give a bit of an introduction and then we'll just open up for discussion and questions and thoughts and reflections um, on, I guess, what are the lessons, what can we draw from um, this bit of history and take into the movement today. Um, so yeah, Kieran, do you want to kick off? Sure. Um, so is the early workers' movement in the 1800s that first began to think about how to relate to women's place in society? Um, and at that time, you're mostly talking about the utopian socialists. Um, I find it interesting that these debates are often reflected in some of the literature. Um, in George Eliot's Middlemarch, for example, um, Dorothea entertains some vague sort of utopian socialist ideas um, to, quote, take a great deal of land and drain it and make a little colony where everybody should work, sort of ideas of equality there. Um, <clears throat> this reflects the sort of ideas of Robert Owen, who was a very prominent utopian socialist, had an idea about the new moral world. And we also had an idea from George Eliot's notebooks that she was reading lots of other French utopian socialists at the time, like Fourier, um, who famously said, the extension of women's rights is the basic principle of all social progress. Um, and also another French utopian socialist, Saint-Simon, who declared... <clears throat> All the privileges of birth, without exception, should be abolished. Um, sadly, if you've read the book, you'll know that they do end up conforming to sort of middle-class norms. But I find it interesting that even in literature, it, this debate does come out. Um, of course, there were other utopian socialists who were firmly opposed to women's rights. And the most prominent of them was the Prussian-German socialist Ferdinand Lassalle, some of you might have heard of. Um, Lasalle was active in the German Revolution of 1848. He had a debate around um, something called the Iron Law of Wages, something that Marx sort of disagreed with in the critique of the Goethe programme. But in relation to the women's movement, um, Lasalle led a group of people called the Proletarian Anti-Feminists. Um, they were famous for opposing votes for women. Um, Lasalle himself actually urged male workers to strike against the entry of women into the workplace. Um, by contrast, Marx and Engels opposed Lasalle. They said that women's work was a step forward. Um, as early as the Communist Manifesto, you got a critique of the sort of idealised nuclear family. Um, and they supported women workers in struggle during the existence of the First International. Um, for example, they wrote quite a lot about the strikes of ribbon makers and uh, silk weavers, who were mostly women workers in Lyon in 1868. Um, that being said, even Marx and Engels often relied on sort of traditionalist ideas of female docility and gentility. There are parts of Das Capital where they talk about um, women not entering dangerous professions and so on. Maybe we can talk about that later. There are some later socialist feminists who also distinguish between Marx and Engels' approach and say that they have slightly different takes on, on uh, women's oppression. We could come back to that. But we should get back to German women's movement um, in that context. So 1875... The Socialist Labour Party of Germany is formed. Um, that later became, as we know, the SPD, the German Social Democratic Party, uh, which was the largest socialist party in the world. 
Um, and that party went on to build and organise a working-class women's movement, primarily led by Clara Zetkin. Um, even within that socialist movement, though, there had to be fights over women's rights. Um, I've got two sort of competing examples here. Um, in 1869, uh, the International Trade Cooperative of Factory and Manual Workers of Saxony uh, broadened out into an association for both sexes, um, and they very much believed that the solution uh, to women being paid less was to organise collectively together and to level up wages. Um, but by contrast, in... Uh, 1872, the Airfoot Workers' Congress resolved to work against all female labour in the factories and workshops and to abolish the same. Um, and there was a big fight within the SPD to get it to commit to equal suffrage and the idea that you should fight for everyone's wages to be levelled up. Um, the German women's movement sought to differentiate itself from the bourgeois women's movement, um, which campaigned to get propertied women the same right to vote as propertied men. Um, there were movements like the BDF, uh, the Bund Deutsche Frauenvereine, um, translated as the Union of German Feminist Organisations. It was founded in 1894, it was eventually shut down by the Nazis, and it aimed uh, to fight for sort of legal and educational equality for middle class women and explicitly excluded working class women um, who were not welcomed and were organised instead by the SPD. The SPD, in contrast, fought for straightforward the universal suffrage. Um, this was a name supported by one of the SPD's most famous thinkers, Rosa Luxemburg, um, who we'll talk about later. Um, it's important to note that Clara Zetkin saw the importance of women's self-organisation, and she was the editor of the women's paper, Die Gleichheit, or in English, that's Equality. Um, so women's self-organisation in Germany started for an extremely practical reason, um, which is that although the SPD um, had come out of uh, being banned by Bismarck's anti-socialist laws. They no longer had to operate clandestinely. Um, many laws remained in place which restricted women's political activity. Um, it varied from state to state, but, say, in 1851, the Prussian Association Law straightforwardly banned women from um, organisation... Uh, sorry, from membership of all political organisation. Um, so political activity was severely curtailed. So to get around these laws... Working-class women took part in women-only meetings. Um, working women's associations survived until about 1893, when the police largely disbanded them, and therefore it was at that point in 1891 that Zetkin helped create an independent working-class women's organisation. So what did that movement do? Um, as I said, it had its own paper, Die Gleichheit, that had a circulation of about 80,000 by 1910, um, and Zetkin was its editor for 26 years. It had a regular com column called The Working Women's Movement, um, which was a notice board for different meetings and events happening around the country. They published reports on the working conditions of women uh, and some information on employment legislation as well. Um, and, of course, there was supportive coverage of various women's strikes in Germany and elsewhere. Um, the Women's Movement placed an extremely strong emphasis on education. They set up education clubs, um, Machen Bildungsverein and Frauen Bildungsverein, that's um, girls and women's education clubs. They held meetings, they hosted lectures, they published articles and pamphlets, um, they gathered information on women's working conditions. Um, each club has roughly 50 to 250 members, and they paid a small monthly fee. Um, there are about 3,000 women who are members of these education clubs by 1905. Um, there were also 
reading evening set up from about 1908 onwards, um, Laserbender, and they took place in 150 different locations around Germany, um, by 1910 involving about 4,000 women. Um, there's also a women's library that was set up, uh, the Frauenbibliothek, and that collected various speeches and pamphlets for people to read and share. Um, of course, there was a very desperate need to organise women workers as well. Um, in 1892, there were 6 million women in the German workforce, of whom 5,000 were members of trade unions. Um, so the women's movement organised recruitment drives for the unions, they raised money for strikes, um, and they promoted um, various women's campaigns in the Gleichheit. Um, I'm now going to pass over to Kelly to talk about suffrage. Yeah, and it's probably worth kind of like adding on to just that bit that Kieran was finishing on, that, you know, the work, that work was a, you know, very successful. Um, you know, within two years, the kind of number of women that were involved in trade unions had more than doubled to, to 12,000. So, you know, they were working extremely quickly and achieving a lot. Um, so, yeah, Kieran's already talked a little bit about suffrage, but um, the kind of the big... Uh, divide, I suppose, which not in the German women's movement, but kind of in the International Congress um, in 1907 when they first discussed this, um, was the kind of debate, debate between adult suffrage and partial kind of like women's suffrage. Um, and, you know, the, the two countries that were present that sent delegates um, that were kind of on, on, in favour of partial women's suffrage were Britain um, and Austria. Uh, whereas Germany, kind of like under kind of like under the kind of leadership of uh, Zetkin, was kind of pretty kind of vehement um, in their kind of uh, kind of condemnation um, of their position. But but kind of before I go into that a bit, bit more, I'm going to kind of give you a bit of a picture of what this um, you know what this congress was like. Um, so. Uh, I mean, so I, I kind of got, there's a few different kind of sources which I've kind of been reading about this, um, this, this first International Women's Congress. Um, so there is, there's a report that I was reading in Labour Leader, which is the, the paper for the Independent Labour Party. Um, so you know, the Independent Labour Party had sent delegates which were arguing in favour of women's suffrage. They were a minority in the Congress. But just to give you a little bit of a just kind of added um, anecdote, just because I thought it was really funny when I read it, um, they kind of do this little bit where they're just describing all of the people in this Congress. And the French delegate, um, they, they kind of gave quite a lot of time to because she was a particularly kind of like interesting, kind of funny character. Citoyenne uh, Pelletier is a very manlike lady with short hair, black coat, white collar. She was, actually, she was actually famous for going around with a big bowler hat, like a kind of like a suit and a, and a cane, um, which... Uh, and then there's another Frenchman who wears a grey hat like John Ward's famous sombrero, which she puts at an acute angle on her head with a red coat, and the effect is almost warlike. Um, <laughs> speakers from various countries spoke at length, and the most amusing among them, among them being the man like Madame um, Pelletier. In fierce terms, she declared against the French press, which had ridiculed, ridiculed her until her hearers began to feel a sneaking sympathy with the French press. So, like, you know, it's this kind of very interesting characters, but to kind of on the suffrage, so on Monday afternoon the women's conference met again and discussed the suffrage question for four hours. The Germans had a long resolution on the agenda affirming adult suffrage and at the same time declaring with much elaboration that the socialist women's movement of all countries repudiates the limited women's suffrage movement as a falsification of an insult to uh, the principle of political equality of the female sex. 
Frau Zetkin was the most anxious to have this passed and also evidently most anxious to suppress as far as possible the fact that the English ILP socialists do not repudiate a limited suffrage, um, but officially support as a step towards adult suffrage. Um, and, you know, there's another account sort of by uh, Colin Tai. Uh, she um, talks about... You know, the resolution put forward by the German delegates had two objectives. Um, in demanding that the Socialist parties recognise the full extent of the importance of a practical struggle to secure the political equality of women, the resolution was also intended to draw a distinct line between bourgeois feminism and the women's proletarian movement. Um, this struck this English socialist at their most vulnerable point, um, as well as a well-known fact that many of them work hand-in-glove with bourgeois champions of women's rights, and in the, in the heat of, of sometimes selfless struggle in defence of women's interests, they lose sight of class distinct distinctions. And she goes on to talk about um, them as, as kind of committing an unforgivable and kind of despicable portrayal to the workers' movement. So you know, this was like a really, really like passionate kind of like live debate um, in the Congress, and you know, the dividing line was basically: Are we in, in favour of a partial like uh, extension of the franchise to uh, propertied women um, and the ILP? and uh, others in Britain argued that it was a kind of necessary step towards the extension of the franchise um, to everybody because once you've kind of got rid of, you know, the Pankhursts were famous, um, were most famous for kind of arguing this, um, that once you kind of got rid of the sex disability, um, then the bourgeoisie would kind of inevitably, um, you know, government would inevitably um, then enfranchise working class people, um, especially because the liberals um, would be terrified of um, the Tories winning because propertied women would actually largely vote, many of them would vote for the Tories. Um, but Zetkin and Luxembourg, Luxembourg was also um, at this Congress, um, and Kollontai and the majority of the people in this Congress uh, argued that that's a betrayal of your class. You have to, you, we, we're for working class votes and we're for enfranchising um, the, proletari the proletarian movement. Um, so, that was kind of uh, 1907, and you know, and this was this was something that so the SPD and um, the women in the German women's movement were pretty clear on. Um, De Gleihheit uh, published a regular kind of um, column uh, on the question of suffrage. Zetkin wrote a pamphlet, the question of women's uh, the question of women's suffrage in 1907, uh, which was translated into lots of different languages. Um, so yeah, they were kind of like quite clear on this. And actually, it's kind of probably worth noting, so the, the women were enfranchised in 1918, 1919, kind of at a similar time, um, that women were enfranchised for the first time in um, Britain, but they won full universal suffrage um, for everyone over the age of 20, whereas in Britain, we only won a much more limited victory, and it wasn't until a decade later um, that... Uh, it's all universal suffrage and you know I'm, I'm not I don't know exactly whether you know why that was but I think you know the fact that the movement was demanding it quite clearly in a kind of united way whereas the British um, labour movement was kind of much more divided I think it's definitely something to do with that um, da -da -da, sorry so um yeah, they, these, so beginning in kind of like 1893, um, women delegates kind of like held meetings at party congresses. Um, 
20 women kind of attended the first official German Socialist Women's Congress in, in 1900 and discussed extending the system, the system of women's organizers, agitation amongst women workers, and the attitude that socialist women should take to a bourgeois women's movement. And so kind of the, they, this is the question that they were kind of like discussing a lot kind of like themselves. Um, Women's congresses were held every two years after that and grew steadily um, up until, you know, in 1908, 74, uh, women attended the event. I mean, that doesn't actually sound like that many, doesn't it? But, like, I'd fucking kill to be in a room of 74 absolutely awesome kind of, like, women, like the people that were in these meetings. Imagine, imagine. I mean, I guess we are here, but, you know, you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so Rosa Luxemburg spoke at the Women's Congress in 1912, and this is one of the few speeches uh, that has been translated into English today in which she addresses socialist feminist concerns. And kind of like Luxemburg famously kind of like stayed quite um, aloof from the women's movement. I mean, she was very close friends um, with Clara Zetkin. Uh, she supported her completely. And, you know, she was at a, a number of these congresses um, kind of speaking kind of in favour of the fact that these kind of like independent working, like women's kind of structures should continue to exist. And she, she, she gave a speech, for example, in 1907 about um, how they shouldn't let this, these kind of international women's congresses disappear or just like, they shouldn't just like more uh, shift over into um, just general international congresses because otherwise they'd lose their independence and lose their autonomy. So even though she herself wasn't particularly like particularly active participant in these events or in this kind of like aspect of the movement, she was kind of a, a big supporter of it. Um, and yes, uh, and there are several letters and speeches. Um, yeah, and later in jail, she kind of writes to Zetkin, kind of saying that you know, with hindsight, she'd wish she'd spent more of her time doing the work that Zetkin had been doing, kind of expressing kind of kind of regret that she hadn't done that. Um, sorry. Um, so I guess it's, it's, it's probably worth sort of talking about kind of sexism um, within the movement, of which there was kind of, uh, you know, quite a lot. And so, you know, there's, we've actually got a, an article that's been written by a comrade of ours, Janine, who, which um, is on our website, which is very useful in this stuff. It kind of asks the question, like, you know, why do you need to have, what, why did they need to have these kind of like independent kind of like spaces and maybe it's something you want to reflect on about whether that is still true today or not. But, um, you know, one of the reasons was that actually these women um, were, were very frequently kind of like marginalised in the SPD. Um, they, and, you know, at the point where um, the kind of women's organisations kind of got merged into the, pro into the party proper. Um, the women kind of found themselves increasingly just like kicked out into kind of women's issues. Um, you know, kind of child labour, you know, kind of committees and stuff like that. Um, and on other kind of like big, well, other questions, they were kind of, they weren't really uh, allowed to kind of occupy any kind of positions of, of particular significance. Um, and, you know, so these kind of like independent congresses and independent kind of meetings and spaces which these women organised were as much kind of about them organising, you know, criticisms and, you know, and interventions against um, their party leadership as, much as, as anything else. Um, and, you know, I think that's kind of quite important too.
Um, so from about 1900 onwards, some of the German states started to relax the um, laws restricting women's activity. Um, in 1902, the Prussian Secretary of State ruled that uh, women could now attend political meetings alongside men on the condition that the meeting halls were segregated and the women were not allowed to applaud. Um, by 1908, the association laws were repealed in their entirety, um, and this signalled the beginning of moves by the SPD leadership to try and reduce the independence of the socialist women's movement and integrate the various organisations into the party structures. Um, the executive dissolved all separate um, women's organisations. Um, the Women's Bureau was made subordinate to the executive and was eventually dissolved in 1912. Um, the biannual women's conference was postponed to 1910, again subsequently abolished, um, and just one seat on the executive was to be reserved for a woman. Um, I find it very interesting that um, these changes also reflect the political divides going on within the SPD. Um, so Zetkin and Luxembourg were very firmly on the party's left wing. Um, they argued against uh, Edward Bernstein in the revisionism controversy um, in which many of the leading uh, German socialists adopted sort of more reformist attitudes towards socialism and move away from uh, Marxism towards sort of parliamentary activity. Um, and sexist behaviour in the SPD took place in, in this political context. It was used by the right-wing leadership against left-wing women. Um, the women's movement was, of course, not politically uniform, but it was broadly aligned with the SPD left, much like the youth movements. Um, when this one seat was granted and reserved for women on the party executive, Zetkin put herself forward. Um, she wasn't chosen. It was um, Louise Zietz. Um, who was chosen, and this was seen by the party left wing as a, a sort of choice for a more accommodating moderate than a, um, an outspoken revolutionary like Zetkin. Um, and you can see this by the fact that when Zietz took her seat, she um, changed the sort of political position and went with the leadership on saying that the various women's organisations should be shut down or, or subordinated to the executive. Um, I've got two more examples of this sort of left-right divide as well. Um, one is in the approach to the paper, Die Gleichheit. Um, so Clara Zetkin, Ottilie Bader and some others argued that Die Gleichheit should have serious theoretical discussions um, against sort of complaints from the party leadership that it was insufficiently populist. Um, they also wanted to use it as an organising tool to recruit uh, women workers into the party and into the trade unions. Um, and when the SPD took, over, took ownership of Die Gleichheit, um, changes were made, the big theoretical debates and discussions were dropped, um, and from January 1905 they started including supplements called For Our Housewives and For Our Children, um, reflecting that they were no longer interested in sort of organising women workers, but were refocusing the paper towards the housewives of extant male SPD members. Um, and then the last example I've got, so everyone knows about the Zimmerwald Conference, right, in Switzerland, September 1915. The attempt to cohere the remnants of the social democratic movement that were still against the war and hadn't folded into support for their own national bourgeoisies um, on an international basis. Um, but there was another conference that actually preceded this, um, which is often left out of these histories. 
Um, so in March 1915, Clara Zetkin, as the Secretary of the International Women's Secretariat, called a conference in Bern to gather together women socialists who were against the war. Um, the SPD obviously made moves to try and block it, um, but the conference did go ahead. And there were delegates from various European countries, England, France, Germany, Russia, Italy, the Netherlands, etc. And although there were very few in number, they unanimously passed a resolution condemning the war. Um, and I think it's interesting that um, both the women's movement and the youth movement were on the sort of the most left-wing, the most radical sides of the international socialist movement. Um, as Kelly said, the result of this um, sort of takeover by the male SPD leadership was a new division of labour within the SPD. Um, women came to dominate work on welfare issues, um, especially child labour committees. They were often kept out of positions of responsibility. Um, the SPD abandoned the system of separate uh, women organisers, uh, the trans personen. There were some 400 um, dedicated women organisers whose job it was to uh, recruit and educate and organise with uh, women workers, and they were all scrapped um, in 1907. Um, and quite ironically, that was the very year that Austria introduced the system and um, the Austrian Socialist Party, within three years, had recruited 15,000 women members, so showing how effective it was. Um, Despite the shutdown, Zetkin argued that um, the ab abolition of these association laws still meant that there was the need for autonomy for socialist women. In 1908, she called for the retention of women-only groups uh, for education. Um, she continued to edit the Gleichheit despite the limitations um, placed on her. Um, and by 1910, um, Zietz and Zetkin together proposed uh, a new workers' day, but one focused on the oppression of women, um, talking about suffrage, promoting socialism to women workers, and that we now know as the first International Working Women's Day, um, which took place in 1911 in Austria, Denmark, Germany and Switzerland, um, and very quickly became celebrated worldwide. Um, and I think it's very significant that the February Revolution of 1917 started on... International Women's Day. Um, so what's the conclusion to this? And then maybe we could open up some discussions. And discussions. That's going to make a noise, isn't it? Um, so although the German socialist women were continually frustrated by the various sexist attitudes of men in the labour movement um, and their uh, attitudes towards democracy, um, Zetkin and Luxembourg saw women's liberation being achieved through socialism and through the mass movement. Um, and we today would add its, uh, its, its um, reverse remark that socialism can also not be achieved without women's liberation. Um, and it must be through the united action of all sections of the working class. Um, they saw the purpose of building the women's movement to bring women into that united workers' movement and to make that movement very often sexist itself fit for purpose. Um, the movement should be internationalist, radically left-wing, and fought on the ideological, political, and economic fronts of the class struggle. Um, I think I'll leave it there. Maybe we could talk about um, self-organisation, um, the role that democracy played and then failed to play later on, um, publications, activity in the class struggle, women organisers. Um, I think I'll leave it there. Okay, thanks. Thanks.